Thanks for listening to audio from Rockhaven Church. For more information on our ministry, please visit us at our website at www.rockhavenchurch.org. Then I started looking uh, a little closer. Well, first of all, I, I wondered if they got together and they're like, I wonder what Owen's going to preach on. We, we, we got everything done. But then when you start looking, you start thinking, you start digging, you realize there is so much. So much more, especially when you look at that statement of faith and you tie it into this candle we lit this morning. The love that it took to accomplish what is accomplished in number five. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning with that goal. Joel has so graciously shared that testimony of what it, what it is to receive that love from people. This morning, we want to look at what it looks like for us to receive that love from you. And then to have that love in us that flows through us to the world we live in. And by doing that, by experiencing that, we can live and experience the abundant life that you talk about. A life that's full of joy and peace and hope and love. Not because of our effort, but because of what you've done and because we've put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Just open our hearts and our minds this morning to your truth, to your word, and to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. That's Article 5. About 36 words. One of the shortest articles there is. Some of them have twice as many words. They're a lot wordier. This one's short. It's concise. It's to the point. I think that's intentional. I think they wanted to be brief to the point and not distract us from that singular purpose of the work of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, or God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came on a rescue mission for you and I, to do for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. Because of our sin, we are separated from a holy God. If you believe that what he did on the cross was enough to satisfy God's requirement for your penalty of sin, and you put your faith in Jesus, you will receive the gift of being right with God. It's that simple. Yet that profound And sometimes we come to church and somehow we think the message is, God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week.
We think that sometimes. Jesus enters the scene and says, God is good. You have a sin problem. The wages of sin is death. I will take on myself the penalty for your sin so that you might be restored to a right relationship with God. Put your faith in Jesus. It's no longer about your effort, about trying harder. It's about the finished work of the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it so well in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is one word in that verse that does not appear in Article 5. Oh, it's implied. But sometimes we miss the really big things when we buzz right through and right over things that are implied. It's in that last part of verse 20, where he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's that word. That word love, it's not in there, it's not in Article 5, certainly implied, but not there. So we can tend to read right through the work of Christ and not stop to ponder what kind of love did it take to do what Jesus did. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Joel was talking about the Trinity, one God who manifests himself in three ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A concept, an idea that is so big we can't wrap our heads around it, adequate, explain it, we can experience it, but it's, it's huge. It's the same way with the love it took for Jesus to say, I will be your representative. I will pay your penalty of death for sin so that you might be right with God. That is a love beyond human understanding. A love so big we can't get our minds around it. Paul does one of the best explanations I've seen in Romans 8, 38 and 39, and he says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's quite a laundry list. Paul includes everything he can think of that could separate us from the love of God. And he says, no, it can't be done. That love is too big. Paul's experienced it, and he doesn't know how to communicate it except to say there's no way in the world there is nothing that can separate you and I from that kind of a love. In in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Once you and I experience this great love through faith in the finished work of the cross, we will want 
this love to control us, to flow through us, back to Jesus, back to the Father, and to the world around us. That is life. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me, is what we will say with Paul. Then it's his great love that is in us and flows through us to the world we live in. John recognized early in his ministry, the, or Jesus recognized early in his ministry the obstacles he faced when trying to communicate what the gospel is all about. In Mark 7, 13, he says, You are making the word of God void by the traditions that you have handed down. In John 5, 46, he said, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus realized he running headlong into a people that had religious traditions that was keeping them from the true message of the gospel. In Luke 16, 31, he says, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Remember after the resurrection, when Jesus was walking on the Emmaus Road, he encounters those two men, and he begins talking to them, and they didn't recognize him at all. But they began to have this great conversation on the way, and in verse 27 of Luke 24, Jesus says, or it records, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the true story of Christmas, the story of love, of the rescue mission that started on Christmas morning and that was completed when Jesus walked out of the tomb isn't fully appreciated or even understood properly unless you start from the beginning, unless you start with the words of Moses. What were the writings of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The count of creation of a perfect world where there is no death, there's no illness. There was a man and a woman who were walking and talking with God in the garden, that perfect relationship that was intended just to last forever. There was no sin, there was no death. There were no weeds I don't think there was snow. At least it wasn't cold. <laughs> but it was a perfect world. And then the story of, when, where at the end of that, when God had made the world and he'd put man in the world, he looked at it and he said, it is very good. It was his idea, and he said it was very good. And then the second thing is the story of the fall, when man disobeyed God and listened to the voice that asked, as God really said, and disobeyed, sinned against God. And from that moment on, death and decay became a part of life. And then number three, the judgment that we see. God judged Adam for his sin, and one day God will judge the whole world by fire but we see the beginning of that judgment for sin and how tragic life became because of sin. And then we see the law. God gives the law to live by. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, if he hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. 
The sacrificial system was set up because there had to be a sacrifice for sin. A blood offering was shed to remind the people and to cover their sin that sin leads to death. That blood offering all pointed ahead to Jesus, to the cross, to the rescue mission, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. But if you didn't understand that or even have the story of everything, starting with creation, you couldn't fully understand the message of the gospel that Jesus brought. Jesus describes his his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is a great treasure. Well, to find a great treasure, you need a treasure map. You know, I don't know where to start. Or follow the map, find the treasure at the end. If we just start in the middle with the New Testament, you, you got that part, but you don't fill in Life was perfect until there was sin, and sin had a devastating effect on what was perfect. And Jesus set up the sacrificial system that points ahead to now we get the New Testament to the cross. And all of a sudden, that takes on a new meaning. It becomes much bigger than it is without that part of the story. It becomes huge. He came to a people that had a tradition, but their hearts were far from God. He said, these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These people had twisted the law so that whatever they wanted to do, they could do based on one or more of the 630-some laws that they had now in their system of law. They had figured out how to use the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Jesus encountered that very early in his ministry, and he met it head-on. Very early in his ministry, he recorded his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, And he's going to take head on this whole idea that we're okay because we got the law, you know. And we're obeying what we want to obey to make ourselves good. This this sermon would be a summation of, um, you would think it would be a summation of his ministry, but it's not. You would think it'd be something he'd record at the end, but this is right up front. He's only done one short little missionary tour of healing and people, but now this first recording of his teaching. He goes to a hillside and he sits down. And he's basically teaching his disciples. But there's many people following, so everybody's listening. And he sits down and he begins to teach. In chapter 4 of Matthew, we see in verse 17, the beginning Uh, of his ministry, and it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. We don't know how much time passed there, but uh, he went through Galilee, and of course, he had a big following, a lot of people came, and then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see that Sermon on the Mount, a sermon where Jesus drives a stake in the ground of human history, and he says, no, that following 
the law and not the letter of the law is not what I intended, not what God intended. This is how you are to live. He tells the world that the legalistic practices of the scribes and Pharisees is not what he intended. He makes that very clear in verse 20 of chapter 5 when he says to them, says to the crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If he didn't have their attention before, he certainly had it now. He had just told these people that unless they surpass, their righteousness surpassed that of their teachers, their pastors, as you will, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount was to forever correct the notion that keeping the letter of the law while ignoring the Spirit is never acceptable. One of the Pharisees, who was also a lawyer, comes to Jesus in Matthew 22, testing him with that, one of those gotcha questions, the true question. Read that, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Read that account. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Their focus was so much on the law, they just want to know, well, if I'm going to be good according to law, I need to know what commandment Jesus says is the greatest. Which one is it? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Where'd that come from? Jesus is quoting the law. Deuteronomy 6.5 is what he's quoting. We can easily think of the law as a series of negatives of don't do this, don't do that. But here is this injunction from Jesus, this is what all the law and the prophets are built on. This is what they mean, that you love the Lord your God with all that you are. What does that look like? It is best pictured by the person described in the opening of that Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. We're going to do the summary. Matthew chapter 5, as that Sermon on the Mount starts, Blessed are the happy, or happy. The word happy can be used there in place of blessed. Either one, blessed or happy, are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit because they recognize they are in need of God's help. In verse 4, they are the ones who mourn. They mourn over the sin that they realize separates them from a holy God. Verse 5, they are meek before a holy God because they know there is nothing they can do. For themselves. They need a rescue plan from God. Then verse 5, they approach him. They're meek before a holy God, and they hunger and thirst for the righteousness that can only be found in him. Verse 7, they both receive mercy from God, and they will now show mercy to others. God gives them a pure heart. They become peacemakers. 
Not only have they made peace with God, but they can now share that message so others can also be at peace with God. And how does the world react? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. A world does not want to make peace with God, does not want anything to do with his righteousness. That world is going to reject that message. Jesus says, when that rejection happens, when that persecution happens, rejoice and be glad. For they persecuted the prophets before you. And then, in the rest of the chapter 5, he corrects the false teachings of the law. He said it wasn't the law that's wrong, it was the false teachings. He's not correcting the law. He's correcting the false teaching that have crept in when men ignored the spirit of the law and used the letter of the law to have things their way. How about you and I? This morning when we combine Article 5, That statement that says the work of Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross. As the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin, his atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Do we begin to understand and comprehend how big this all-sufficient sacrifice is and the love that it took is the love that God has for you and me, a love that we can't comprehend. There's another word in that uh, article that trips people up. It's a word only. We get to the end, uh, that last part, it says, this is the only ground for salvation. I remember very distinctly two separate times in my life where people said, oh, well, you're an exclusive group. <laughs> Maybe you've heard that. You say there's only one way for salvation? Well, there's, the world says there's lots of ways to God. But our statement of faith says there's only one way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He establishes a pretty exclusive group. It is the most inclusive, exclusive group in the world. Jesus wants everyone to receive the gift of the cross. It is exclusive, but it's as inclusive, it's more inclusive than anything because it's God's will that none should perish, no, not one, but that all would come 
to a saving knowledge of who he is and what he's done and experience his love. So we need to have the answer for that. Somebody says, well, you're really an exclusive group. I said, Jesus says it's an exclusive group. But it's the most inclusive group, and he wants to include you. He wants you to come. The Apostle Paul says it well when he says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If we ignore the gift of Christmas. If we ignore the rescue plan that God came for his world. So yes, that's an exclusive group. But it's the most inclusive Exclusive group you can ever come up with. That's the answer. That's the answer. Mary, I want you to bring your team up. We're, we're, I thought I had just piles of stuff, but we're going to get out of here a little early on a cold day. So bring your team up, and then we'll have a few closing remarks. Rescue mission that Jesus came on that started with the manger and ends with the cross that is wrapped up in love we can't comprehend. You're saying, I, I want to know that love. How does, how does that happen in me? I wish I could give you that simple answer. <laughs> I think the only way to experience it is to take the manger and put it at the foot of the cross and just stay there. Recognize where you and I would be without this rescue plan and recognize the love that it took for God to send his son to die on my behalf, on your behalf, to pay that penalty for sin. Just stay there until that love of God flows in and through you and becomes who you are. It's the only way I know of. There's no simple do this, this, this to experience God's love. You know that commandment, thou shalt love the Lord your God? You're, you're telling somebody you're going to do that. <laughs> Try to tell your kids to love their brother or sister, you know. It doesn't work. You have to experience God's love. This Christmas season, experience that rescue plan that God performed for you so that his love becomes just dominant in your life and in your heart. Be blessed this week, this Christmas season. See you on Christmas Eve. Thanks for being here.